0: Welcome to Cancer Conference update and highlights of the December ASH meeting in New Orleans. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. I met with five investigators to summarize and comment on some of the most critical presentations from ASH. And to begin, Dr. Brad Call discussed new data sets in NHL, beginning with a patterns of care study in mantle cell lymphoma.
1: This abstract came from a group that looked at a database from the National Comprehensive Cancer Network, the NCCN. And they're interested in looking at different frontline strategies for mantle cell lymphoma. And they ended up with 167 patients in the database treated in three different ways. There was a group of 29 patients who received R-CHOP, 34 patients who received RCHOP, followed by high dose chemotherapy and autologous stem cell transplant and then 104 patients treated with hyper-CVAD, given in the conventional MD Anderson-type way. These were younger mantle cell patients. Everyone was under the age of 65. None of these patients were on a clinical trial. These were all treated outside of the trial setting. And what they found was that the group that received our chop alone had inferior outcomes for progression-free survival and overall survival, compared to the patients treated in the more intensive ways. The outcomes for the patients who received either the CVAD or the RCHOP followed by stem cell transplant were pretty equivalent in terms of progression-free survival and overall survival. There were a few more hospital days, obviously, in the group that got the stem cell transplant because they you know, get hospitalized when it's time to get their stem cell transplant, but there were fewer events requiring hospitalization. In other words, The patients who got the hyper-CVAD had more events that required hospitalization or sort of, I guess, unplanned events. I think the bottom line from this abstract is that our CHOP is not really adequate therapy for younger patients with mantle cell lymphoma. I think we knew that already. This just provides more ammunition saying that. I think for the younger patients, there are several very reasonable approaches that one could consider in practice. One reasonable approach would be our chop usually for six cycles, followed by autologous stem cell transplant. Another reasonable approach would be to give conventional hyper for about four cycles, followed by stem cell transplant. And finally, one could just give the full course of hyper-CVAD, which in the MD Anderson series was eight cycles. And I think all three strategies are reasonable and probably have fairly similar outcomes It would require a huge study to show a difference between those three, the kind of study we're never going to do, frankly. So I think for practitioners, any one of those three would be a reasonable approach. You've studied the
0: so-called modified hyper regimen, and you had a poster at ASH looking at a modification of that. Can you discuss what you presented there?
1: So we presented a poster at the meeting this year where we did our modified hyper which takes out the methotrexate and the citerabine. It was a regimen we really put together so we could give it to older patients And then we had added Velcade, and the new regimen was called VCR-CVAD, and we just completed a phase two study in the Eastern Cooperative Oncology Group. That was abstract number 1661 at the meeting. And so in the ECOG study, which was ECOG protocol 1405, we treated 75 patients with untreated mantle cell lymphoma. The median age was 63, and so... This was an older population in general, not quite the same population as in the last abstract I mentioned. Anyway, we found that the VCR-CVAD regimen was very doable in this patient population. There were very few dropouts for reasons of toxicity. We had very few problems with peripheral neuropathy. And we don't really have long-term follow-up because the study just closed to accrual about a year ago, but we wanted to report the response rates. And what we found was that the complete response rate to the regimen was 75%, which is about what we thought it needed to be to be of interest. So we thought that was a good result, an exciting result. We presented the poster this year. We really don't have time to event data yet. I can't tell you anything about progression-free survival or overall survival, but I think the modified hyper-CVAD or the VCR-CVAD induction is a very reasonable induction for patients who can't take high-dose citerabine. So once you get over, you know, age 60, 65, I think this would be a very reasonable frontline strategy.
0: The idea of bringing bortezomib earlier in mantle cell makes a lot of sense. What about bringing it up in terms of these other two strategies I perceive at an RCHOP slash transplant?
1: So, you know, that's the real question is what is the bortezomib-adding to the induction regimen, and our ECOG trial was not a randomized trial, so I can't say for certain that the bortezomib is adding. The MD Anderson is now doing a study where they're adding bortezomib to their conventional hypercev ad, so we're obviously excited to see what that data looks like. And then the Southwest Oncology Group recently completed a trial in which they added bortezomib to our CHOP, and I think we'll have results from that trial within the next year or so. So I think we'll have some data trying to get at you know, what is bortezomib adding to these frontline regimens? It needs a randomized trial, to be honest with you, Neil. Sure.
0: Any sense in terms of quality of life, you know, complications of therapy in terms of our ad as opposed to our CHOP slash transplant? I've heard docs in practice say they think that maybe it's easier on the patient to go through transplant.
1: Yeah, that's a hard thing to sort out in the setting of a trial. Certainly my impression from taking care of a lot of mantle cell patients, is that it is actually easier for a patient to go through RCHOP chop in a stem cell transplant or abbreviated hyper in a stem cell transplant, as opposed to going through the full eight courses of conventional hyper And so, for example, we are currently developing an intergroup trial. That's a collaboration between ECOG and SWOG. And we had a lot of discussions about what should be our backbone, our chemotherapy platform for younger patients moving forward. And what we settled on, Neil, was four rounds of conventional hyper-CVAD, so that's two part A's and two part B's, followed by high-dose chemotherapy and autologous stem cell transplant. And we're going to do a phase two trial involving both cooperative groups just to set the bar. We want to see how that regimen performs in a multi-center cooperative group setting. We really don't know. We only have single institution data, you know, which is always different. And once we have that bar set, then we're going to start adding to that regimen. And then we can start doing more innovative things like Velcade in the induction or lenalidomide post-transplant or things like that. So we sort of think that a good base to build from is a abbreviated hypercev ad, meaning four cycles followed by an autologous stem cell transplant for patients 65 and younger.
0: Let's go on and talk about one of the toughest presentations to get into in the ASH meeting. It was like the Beatles had returned to town, or you couldn't even get in the televised portion of it, which is Rommel's presentation on bendamustine with rituximab.
1: Yeah, I was shut out of the room, too. (laughs) (laughs) I went to the overflow room 20 minutes early, and it was standing in there. And just a note again, it just
0: frustrates me so much that ASH can't get these presentations posted the way ASCO does. It's unbelievable.
1: Yeah. And every year, they shortchange the lymphoma oral sessions with rooms that are too small. Yeah. So, All right. Anyhow, yeah. it was great so, data. So let's talk about it. Yeah. So this was a really important study, probably the most important study that I saw at the ASH meeting this year. And this comes from a German cooperative group called the STIL, S-T-I-L. And several years ago, they had initiated this randomized phase three study that was comparing our CHOP to bendamustine rituxan for patients with indolent and mantle cell lymphoma. So the study included a variety of histologies, follicular, marginal zone, small lymphocytic and mantle cell. And the study was really designed as a non-inferiority study. In other words, it was powered to show that the bendamustine rituxan is no worse than our CHOP with about a they would accept as much as a 10% drop-off in the progression free survival at three years to say that it's non-inferior, with the idea that it would be less toxic because there's no anthracycline, there's no finca alkaloid, there's no steroid. So they had mature results to present at the meeting this year. It was a fairly large study. There were five hundred and forty nine patients randomized. Five hundred and thirteen were evaluable of that group a little over half had follicular lymphoma, 18% had mantle cell, 13% marginal zone, and then smaller percentages of marginal zone and small lymphocytic. And the median age of the two arms were 64 and 63, and the patient groups were totally balanced for baseline characteristics. So I think we had data that we can trust here, and the groups were comparable. And the bottom line is that bendamustine rituxan beat chop rituxin for progression free survival for the whole cohort the median progression free survival for chop was about 35 months and it was 55 months for bendamustine rituxan so there's fairly i think significant separation in those progression free survival curves if you go back and just look at response rates the regimens produced the same overall response rate but the Complete response rate was a bit higher in bendamustine rituxin, 40% versus 30%. And then if you start looking at subgroups like follicular, which was the biggest subgroup, the median progression for your survival is not reached for bendamustine rituxin, where it had reached the median at 47 months for CHOP Rituxin. So in follicular lymphoma, bendamustine rituxin performed a little bit better than CHOP Rituxin. And it looked more favorable in terms of toxicities. There was no alopecia, as you might expect from bendamustine rituxin. There was less neutropenia. There was less need for GCSF in the bendamustine rituxin arm. There was less issues with paresthesias, with stomatitis. The infections were comparable. And actually, there were eight episodes of sepsis in CHOP rituximab and only one in bendamustine rituximab. So by just about any measure that you could come up with, bendamustine Rituximab looks as good, if not better, than CHOP Rituximab for this patient population. They went on to show breakdowns in the mantle cell and the other subgroups, and bendamustine Rituximab looks superior in all of those groups. So I think this is a potentially practice-changing study. And, you know, it's always been controversial whether to include the anthracycline up front, and there may be no need to even have that debate anymore. And bendamustine Rituximab, I think, looks like it would make a fine standard frontline therapy for follicular lymphoma, other indolent lymphomas, and possibly older patients with mantle cell lymphoma.
0: How have you approached it in your own practice outside of protocol setting and has this specific data? because they they presented this before, obviously, but now it's more mature. How about this specific data set? Did it actually change what you've done since then in the last few weeks?
1: Well, it's a good question. I haven't started any patients on new therapy, Since I got back from ASH, I do worry a little bit about reimbursement issues. The bendamustine is somewhat expensive. It is FDA approved in the U.S., but it's only approved for rituximab refractory recurrent indolent lymphoma. And there may be some issues with reimbursement, and I know a lot of people are worried about that. So I haven't tried to use it, quote, off-label, unquote, in the frontline setting yet. And it'll be interesting to see if we run into difficulty with payment.
0: What would you like to do?
1: Oh, I'd like to use it. I would like to use it as the frontline treatment if I was able. And I can tell you, just with an ECOG, for example, we were about to initiate a brand new frontline follicular study, and our chemotherapy backbone was chop Rituxin. And we are currently working diligently to change the backbone to bendamustine rituxin in our new frontline follicular study in ECOG.
0: I got to ask you what it's going to look at.
1: It's going to look at the contribution of bortezomib added to induction therapy, and it's going to look at the contribution of lenalidomide added to rituximab maintenance therapy.
0: I've been a little confused about the issue, I don't want to get too far off the topic, about bortezomib and follicular lymphoma, whether the data is encouraging. Obviously, you must think it is, since you're looking at it earlier.
1: I think the data for bortezomib and follicular lymphoma is modestly encouraging, not as encouraging as it is in mantle cell. And we do think it's worth testing in follicular lymphoma. I certainly would not incorporate it into follicular lymphoma regimens outside of a clinical trial at this point.
0: Sounds like it'd be a whole lot easier to give bendamustine without the vincristine in terms of neuropathy with the bortezomib.
1: I agree 100% and it actually makes our life quite a bit easier. It was a real struggle to figure out how to add bortezomib into CHOP or our modified CVAD. It's going to be a lot simpler to add it into bendamustine.
0: You wonder if that even could affect efficacy, you know, maybe bortezomib being looked at in later line therapy. People have already had neurotoxic agents. Maybe they don't get as much drug. Any reason to think that?
1: No, I think that absolutely could happen and it should hopefully preserve some downstream options. We might Again, be able to save anthracyclines. You might be able to save vinca alkaloids for later. So there could be a whole host of downstream ramifications that are beneficial to patients.
0: Not too differently sort of related to that is Abstract 924 that Jonathan Friedberg et al. presented looking at bendamustine, bortezomib, rituximab, and mantle cell phase 2 study.
1: So that presentation from Friedberg et al. actually was a study for relapse disease that included indolent and mantle cell lymphoma. And it was this combination of bendamustine, bortezomib, and rituxan, sometimes called BVR, with the V standing for Velcade in that nickname. And so, what they did, this was a multi-center phase two trial. They gave the bendamustine at a dose of 90 milligrams per meter squared every 28 days, and that's probably something we should just spend a minute talking about, right. you know, which we haven't touched on yet. So let me digress for one minute. You know, the FDA label dose for bendamustine in the relapse setting is 120 milligrams per meter squared, days one and two, given every 21 days. And I was the lead investigator and first author on that paper. And, you know, I can tell you that that is not the optimal dose for bendamustine. And if you look at the data that Rummel used in his abstract and the data that Friedberg used in their study, the dose of 90 milligrams per meter squared, days one and two, given every 28 days is a much more patient-friendly dose and schedule. Bendamustine is a fairly myelosuppressive agent. It can be particularly hard on platelets. And the recovery of counts after bendamustine is slower than it is after regimens we're more used to giving, like CVP and CHOP. So to have that interval go from 21 to 28 days, I think, is important. And I think 90 is going to turn out to be a better dose than 120 So in the Friedberg study, they used this dose of 90 every 28 days. They used conventional dosing of bortezomib, which is 1.3 milligrams per meter squared on days 1, 4, 8, and 11, and then with rituximab on day 1. This was a study that had 31 patients, half had follicular lymphoma, and then there were a few with small lymphocytic, seven patients with mantle cell, lymphoplasmocytic, and marginal zone. So it was a fairly typical relapse population, and what was encouraging is that they showed this regimen produces an overall response rate of about 80%. It was a little bit better in the folliculars than the mantle cells, 85 versus 71. Only 10% of patients progressed through the regimen. And the follow-up was quite short, only 16 months. But at one year, the progression-free survival was 74%. So there's two concerns, I think, that are important. One is the potential for zoster. I think bendamustine is probably a little bit harder on T-cells than cytoxin is. And certainly in my own practice, we've seen more problems with herpes zoster reactivation in patients who've received bendamustine. And so I think acyclovir prophylaxis is perhaps a good practical tip. And we definitely see that with bortezomib too. We see a relatively high incidence of zoster. And so I think the two in combination could increase that potential even more. And in the Friedberg study, they saw VZV reactivation 6% of patients had a grade 3 episode. The other thing then is the peripheral neuropathy. Obviously, bortezomib is a moderately neurotoxic agent, and they gave it at the days 1, 4, 8, and 11 schedule in this trial. And so they had 14% of patients had grade 3 peripheral neuropathy, 3% had grade 4. And I think the issues going forward are, A, does bortezomib add anything to the bendamustine rituximab backbone? That's sort of question number one. And then question number two is what is the best dose and schedule for the bortezomib in addition? Do we need to give it at that twice a week schedule for those four doses every cycle? Could we get away with weekly dosing of the bortezomib and get the same efficacy with less neuropathy? Those are the kind of questions I think that really need to be sorted out here in the next, you know, generation of studies.
0: I guess in particularly in myeloma there's been encouraging data on the weekly bortezomib, although I've heard some people question whether it's more the total dose the patient gets. Any thoughts about whether it is the total dose or the schedule that's affecting because it's a pretty dramatic difference at least in myeloma.
1: Yeah, it seems to be that way in lymphoma too. The neuropathy is definitely less with the weekly dosing. We just don't know if we're losing efficacy and I honestly don't know, Neil, if it's the total dose or the frequency. I think it's a hugely important question, and I hope we really try to get at that with some of the next studies that we do. You know, what's the best way to give this agent?
0: What about this vertical study that Fowler et al. reported?
1: So the vertical study was a multicenter study testing the same regimen as what we just talked about in the Friedberg study. It's a combination of bendamustine, rituximab, and bortezomib. The differences are the vertical study was a bigger study with 63 patients, all relapsed follicular lymphoma, and then it had a different dose and schedule. So trying to get away from the bortezomib neuropathy, these investigators chose to give the bortezomib weekly. So there were four weekly doses in every cycle as opposed to four biweekly doses in every cycle. And then to make room to get in those four doses, they spread the bendamustine out to 35-day intervals. So every cycle in this regimen is 35 days. The bendamustine dose was 90 milligrams per meter squared, days one and two. Q35, rituximab was given on day one, although there were four doses of rituximab with the first cycle. And then the bortezomib is the usual dose of 1.3 milligrams per meter squared, but it's given weekly. So four weekly doses in each 35-day cycle. So 63 patients with relapsed follicular lymphoma. And like with the Friedberg study, they had a phenomenally high overall response rate of 86%, complete response rate of 53%. And if you look at the waterfall plot, the amount of tumor reduction was very impressive for all of these patients.
0: Yeah, you know, I haven't seen too many waterfall plots in lymphomas, and you don't see too many waterfall plots like this in solid tumors where, I mean, you know, huge tumor drops and nobody with progression.
1: Right, so very impressive activity. And if you look at the toxicity, it gives you the impression that the neuropathy may be less than, say, if you compare it to the Friedberg study. There were no grade 4 neuropathy, And six episodes of grade three are 10%, so perhaps slightly reduced peripheral neuropathy compared to the biweekly bortezomib as done in the Friedberg study. So this is what I mean where we have some work to do to figure out, you know, the best way to give these regimens in combination. I think the idea is great, bortezomib, bendamustine, rituximab, this is a combination that I know is being studied in the CLGB. We're studying it now in ECOG in our new frontline follicular study, which I mentioned earlier. And we're also designing a frontline mantle cell study in conjunction with SWAG, in which we're also going to test this combination of B, V, R, bendamustine, belcade, and rituximab.
0: How a paper 935 looking at ofatumumab and rituximab refractory follicular lymphoma?
1: So ofatumumab is one of these new anti-CD20 monoclonal antibodies, and it targets a different epitope on the CD20 antigen. And some in vitro work with ofatumumab suggests it can work in cell lines that are refractory to rituximab. It's a very potent inducer of the complement system, which is one of the postulated systems that is important for clearing B-cells out of the blood, which is why ofatumumab has had a lot of its early development in CLL, but there's obviously interest in seeing what this drug can do in lymphoma as well. And there was an ofatumumab paper that was published in Blood last year in which the activity in relapsed follicular lymphoma looked respectable with some durable responses. But the real question is, is this drug any better than what we already have, namely rituximab? And so one way to try to get a handle on that is to give this drug to people who are, frankly, rituximab refractory and see if you can get responses there. If you could get responses in that population, then maybe you know, you're know you on to something. So you got to give them credit for doing the right kind of study. They picked a tough patient population to study this in. So this it was a study that started out with a couple of different dosing strategies, but it had slow accrual. So they ended up giving most of the patients an ofatumumab dose of a flat 1,000 milligrams, and then they would get it weekly, for eight weeks. I think on week one, they got a dose of 300 milligrams and then a 1,000 milligrams flat dose for the next seven weeks. And they had 86 patients at that dose and a total of 116 patients when you include the lower dose of 500 milligrams flat dose. Bottom line, when I look at this data, I don't see a really strong signal suggesting that ofatumumab is going to be a good drug in this population. The overall response rate was only 10% for the group as a whole, And so I don't think there's a really strong signal here that this new anti-CD20 is going to have activity in patients who are deemed to be rituximab-resistant. What about abstract number 1706? So this abstract was from an Italian cooperative group, and what they were really looking to do was find a regimen that would be easily administered to older patients with advanced-stage follicular lymphoma, They like to use fludarabine-based therapy in this group and had done previous studies using that as the backbone. And what they hoped to do here was eliminate some of the cycles. So they cut down from their normal standard of giving six cycles down to four cycles of rituximab combined with FND chemotherapy. And then that was followed by four weekly rituximab infusions, which they called consolidation, And then they went on to receive rituximab maintenance given as a single dose every two months for a total of four doses. And what they showed were good outcomes for the strategy. They treated over 200 patients in this trial. Median age was 66, so it was a bit of an older population. Patients had very advanced stage disease. And the overall response rate for the regimen was 86%, with 69% of those being complete remissions. That's a very high complete response rate for a follicular lymphoma study. The rituximab consolidation converted some partial response patients into complete response patients. Now, what really matters in a trial like this is the time-to-event data, and the follow-up is short here. It's only 22 months, so we don't know how this regimen holds up over time yet, but the two-year progression-free survival was 75%, which is a good number. It's a single-arm study. It's not comparing anything. But I think this strategy is a good one for older patients trying to eliminate some amount of cytotoxic chemotherapy and replace that with a less toxic therapy like a rituximab consolidation and maintenance course.
0: What about the paper by Zinsani et al. looking at RFM followed by ibrutinib radioimmune therapy?
1: So this is kind of a similar strategy to what we talked about in the last abstract, and again, they're trying to take advantage of some very highly active agents in follicular lymphoma. We know that fludarabine and mithramycin is a very potent combination in untreated follicular lymphoma. We know from the FIT trial, which was published over a year ago, that yttrium ninety, ibrutinib, toxetan is a good consolidation therapy. In a randomized clinical trial, it showed a substantial prolongation in progression-free survival. And so what they were looking for was a potent induction regimen, namely rituximab, fludarabine, and matazantrone for four cycles, and then followed by a single course of 90Y-ibritubumab toxetan as a consolidation. So this trial, at the time of presentation, had enrolled 55 patients. It was a typical breakdown where most of the patients had advanced stage disease, 11 of them had bulky disease. And what they showed was an overall response rate of 92%, including a complete response rate of 75%. And among the nine patients who had partial remission after the chemotherapy, eight of those converted to complete remission after the radioimmunotherapy. So I think the take-home message here was that radioimmunotherapy is a very effective consolidation, and this may turn out to be the best way to give these radioimmunoconjugates as so-called consolidation therapy And perhaps a wiser strategy, since these are myelosuppressive agents, is to give them after a shorter course of chemotherapy. In this case, they gave four rounds of the immunochemotherapy instead of a longer course of six or eight rounds. Even with that shorter course of chemotherapy, they had overall very high complete response rates. And what we hope is that you don't sacrifice efficacy by cutting out some of those rounds of chemotherapy, that you preserve quality of life, and you preserve bone marrow health for downstream treatments. We don't have really time to event data from this trial, so, you know, it'll be interesting to see what the progression-free survival looks like with a couple more years of follow-up.
0: What about the strategy of RAI consolidation outside of a protocol setting? I guess one of the issues is we don't really have randomized data on people who got our chemo up front, just chemo.
1: Right. Yeah, that is a big problem, and we're not going to have that kind of randomized data for a while. You might be aware of the SWOG protocol. The number, I think, is 0016. It was a big randomized trial that has completed accrual over 500 patients, I believe. My understanding is we may have the outcomes from that trial sometime in 2010, and it randomized patients to CHOP Rituxin or CHOP followed by a single dose of I-31-tositumumab. But the patients who received the radioimmunotherapy consolidation didn't receive our CHOP. They received straight CHOP. And so that still won't answer that question that you just posed. There are some theoretical concerns about giving many doses of rituximab in the months preceding radioimmunotherapy that you could theoretically block antigen binding sites and less effectively deliver your radioimmunoconjugate. There's some preclinical data from the group at Fred Hutchinson which suggests that is the case. And so we still don't know if giving rituximab chemotherapy prior to radioimmunotherapy is better than giving straight chemotherapy. That's a area that uh, needs clarification.
0: Speaking of radioimmune therapy, what about the paper by Mark Kaminsky looking at tositumab in follicular lymphoma? I guess this is his 10-year follow-up from the New England Journal study, huh?
1: yeah. So I think it was great that Dr. Kaminsky provided long-term update on this group of patients. This was a very important publication. Just to refresh folks' memories, at the University of Michigan, they treated folks with advanced stage follicular lymphoma, 76 patients. They received no chemotherapy as their frontline treatment. They received just a single dose of I-131-tosatumumab, and they showed outstanding outcomes in that New England Journal of Medicine paper, which was published in 2005 with over half the patients remaining in complete remission out at five years. So with longer follow-up now, with 10-year follow-up, what they have shown is that almost 40% of patients remain in remission 10 years later. When you look at the curves, the Kaplan-Meier curve, you don't get the sense that there's necessarily a plateau. In other words, there are ongoing relapses at years six, seven, eight, and 9. So we don't know what's going to happen to those patients who are still in remission out at 10 years. There still may be ongoing relapses. But gosh, if you can give a group of patients a line of therapy that takes one week to administer and have a large fraction of them still be in their first remission 10 years later, that's a pretty successful outcome by just about any measure. One of the concerns for this was the issue of late toxicities, and somewhat reassuringly, they've only seen one case of MDS-AML in the entire cohort of 76 patients now with long-term follow-up. So I think that provide some comfort that this is a safe therapy. Now, is this being
0: pursued, or is this going to be just historically interesting?
1: Well, this strategy as a frontline strategy does not appear to have really caught on. And I think one of the issues, if you look at the kind of patients that were included in the Kaminsky series, in my view, there weren't a lot of patients with what I would call bulky disease. They said 43% of patients had at least one tumor bigger than 5 centimeters in diameter. 5 centimeters does not really make you bulky, in my opinion, in follicular. There are different definitions of that. But some of the European trials, to be considered high tumor burden, you have to have at least one node bigger than 7 centimeters, or you have to have three nodes bigger than 5 centimeters. Like if you look at that Rummel study we talked about earlier, to even be eligible for that study, you had to have at least three nodes Bigger than 5 centimeters is one of the criteria. So I think one of the potential critiques of the Kaminsky study is this was a younger group of patients. The median age was 49, and perhaps they had a lower tumor burden than what some of these patients in some of these other trials had. And so my own experience, and I have done some trials using radioimmunotherapy as frontline, when patients start to get fairly bulky disease, I'm talking about 10 centimeters, 12 centimeters, 15 centimeter nodes, Radioimmunotherapy struggles a little bit. It does not get you the kind of solder reduction you'd really like to see that you can get from repetitive cycles of cytotoxic chemotherapy. And for that reason, radioimmunotherapy may turn out to be most useful as a consolidation strategy.
0: How about the paper looking at dose dense RCHOP, the GILA study?
1: So this was a very interesting presentation from the GILA group. It created a little bit of controversy at the meeting. The GILA had previously showed that RCHOP21 is better than CHOP21 for patients over the age of 60 with diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. Around the same time, the German high-grade lymphoma study group showed that CHOP14 beats CHOP21 for the same patient population. Then in the RECOVER trial, the same German group went on to show that chop 14 beats CHOP14, which gets us to the point of what's better for this patient population, RCHOP21 or RCHOP14. There's actually two ongoing randomized clinical trials looking at this question. One comes from a group in the UK, and they presented the first snippet of their data at the ASCO meeting this last summer. And they just had response rate data, but there was no response rate advantage for RCHOP-14 over RCHOP-21. This Gila presentation that was presented at ASH was the results of an interim analysis. It looked at the first 200 patients that were enrolled. The trial actually went on to enroll 600 patients. This is just looking at data in the first 200. So patients were randomized to either arm. They all went on to get eight cycles, and there's about 100 patients in each arm. The two groups are very comparable for baseline features. Let me get to the bottom line. If you look at response rate at the end of treatment, there was really no statistically significant difference. If anything, actually, the RCHOP21 was just a touch better than RCHOP14. And if you look at event-free survival, progression-free survival, disease-free survival, and overall survival, there was no benefit for RCHOP14 over RCHOP21. And actually, there's a little bit of separation in some of the curves favoring RCHOP21, although that is not statistically significant. And so, you know, there's the first Kaplan-Meier curves we have to look at comparing those two regimens. Now that leads to all sorts of questions like, did they give the RCHOP14 on time like they were supposed to? Well, it turns out that the median interval between each cycle in RCHOP14 was 15 days. So they got close to getting it in every 14 days. The median dose intensity in terms of planned delivery ended up being somewhat better in RCHOP21. So it kind of raises the question in this elderly population, if you turn up the dial too much, if you try to get in too much chemotherapy too quickly, it can become sort of a defeating prophecy because of toxicity and you end up actually shooting yourself in the foot. And so they weren't really able to deliver the cyclophosphamide and the doxorubicin with the same kind of planned dose intensity in RCHOP-14 that they were able to in RCHOP-21. Now, once they finished giving this presentation, Dr. Freundschuh, who had led the studies in Germany, got up and asked questions about how they administered the treatment, and he was a little upset that they didn't deliver it exactly as they had done in the German trials. For example, in the German trials, all patients would receive a single round of vincristine and prednisone before actually moving on to cytotoxic therapy He feels it's very important. It helps patients improve their performance status and be better study candidates because a lot of the myelosuppression and infections and sepsis events often happen in cycle 1. So he feels like that's very important to do this vincristine prednisone sort of tune-up before you come in with the real aggressive set of toxics. And then in the German studies, they had always given GCSF prophylactically with every cycle of RCHOP14, and they did not do that in the French study, and he felt like that was a mistake. So, the Germans don't feel like the French have really answered the question here because they didn't give the regimen the same way that the Germans did. My understanding is that the trial in the UK is actually giving the RCHOP 14 as prescribed by the German Aggressive Lymphoma Study Group. So, we have another crack at getting an answer to this question in a definitive way. But for right now, in practice, I would say there's nothing to support giving RCHOP 14 right now in practice. I would give RCHOP 21, and that's what I would tell anybody. Let me
0: ask you about a paper a lot of people hope to hear at ASH but didn't, namely the PRIMA study looking at R-maintenance.
1: So the PRIMA study was this big GILA study, somewhere close to 1,000 patients, frontline follicular patients received RCHOP or RCVP, Or there was one other induction, which I'm forgetting the details of what the other chemotherapy patients could get, although the vast, vast, vast majority of patients received RCHOP as the induction. Once patients completed that, they were then randomized to observation or two years of rituximab maintenance given as a single dose every two months for a total of two years. And there was a press release in September which indicated the study had met its primary endpoint which was, I'm probably not remembering the details perfectly, something like a 45% improvement in the progression-free survival at two years or something like that. And apparently the study met it. So the press release tells us that the progression-free survival is improved by the application of two years of rituximab maintenance after rituximab-containing chemotherapy, in this case, which was, for most patients, rituximab chop. What we don't know is the magnitude of the difference, and we don't know anything about toxicities or complications yet. I was very surprised it wasn't accepted as a late abstract. I think this is another trial that could be potentially practice-changing, although I think a lot of people do give maintenance already in practice, and so it might be (laughs) practice-affirming might be a better term. It's not a big surprise to me if that data does hold up. I have thought for years that it probably would show progression-free survival advantage, Some people argue if there's a progression-free survival advantage but no overall survival advantage, then are you really doing your patients any favors? And my answer to that is, well, you are if you're buying them a longer remission without more toxicity. And so that's really what the key question then becomes. Does the two years of maintenance cost the patient anything? Does it increase the risk for infections? Does it increase the risk for other types of complications? Does it limit the kind of things that you can do downstream later in the patient's course. And, you know, to date, there's no data suggests that there is harm from doing that. Two years of maintenance have not seen any evidence that suggests that that's a problem or creates a new set of issues. So if the Prima data, when it finally comes out, shows what the press release tells us it's going to show, I think it's just going to make everybody feel more confident that two years of maintenance is a very appropriate and reasonable thing to do after our containing chemotherapy.